Lord, open our hearts, open our minds, give us ears and courage to hear you and follow you. In your name we pray. Amen. Roger, is it better if I don't have this in front of me? Okay, I'll just move it slightly out the way. I know that's a little bit of a distraction, but you can hear me well enough. Yes, you can hear me well enough. Okay, so we're so familiar with the story that we've just heard that actually we lose how very shocking and revolutionary it was. Peter had just had this vision about eating non-kosher food, and he was deeply shocked. He was deeply shocked that the angel invited him to eat this food that for him was unclean, because the manner of life and the customs, the way of living, was so deeply ingrained in those early Jewish believers And following the law was how you pleased God. And it defined you as one of God's chosen people, an insider. The Jewish people were definitely insiders with God. It was extraordinarily hard for them to get their heads around the fact that God desired to be the God of all nations, not just the Jewish people. In fact, the prophets had been speaking about this a lot, not just Isaiah and the passage that we heard. The prophets had been speaking over and over again how God's intention was that the Jews should be a light to all nations. But the Gentiles, really, God, they were outsiders. They were uncircumcised. They ate unclean food. How could they possibly be acceptable to God? And the angel had said to Peter, do not call anything impure that God has made clean. And very clearly in the conversation that Peter then had in the household of Cornelius, God made it really clear that he had accepted these Gentile people unconditionally pouring out his Holy Spirit on them in the same way that he had on the early Jewish believers at Pentecost. Hallelujah! Because I think that we're probably a bunch of Gentiles this morning, aren't we? Yes, I'm not sure. I don't know you well enough. Maybe there's a Jew out there among you. I'm a Gentile. Hallelujah! I am in. I am welcomed in the family of God. Now, however... This revolution prompted for those early believers an ethical crisis because those Gentiles did not keep the same behavioural standards. So a subtitle for this talk might be How to Stay Calm in an Ethical Crisis. Now what is an ethical crisis, you might say to me? Let's define it very, very simply. Let's say it is any issue around behaviour over which we disagree. Christians have disagreed about issues of behaviour for a very, very long time. In my mother's day, she was brought up in a good, godly, Scottish, Protestant household. 
Christian behaviour meant not being allowed to play the organ on a Sunday. There was an organ in the front room, and they were not allowed to play it on a Sunday because organ playing was entertainment, and that was not appropriate for the Lord's Day. And uh, as for going out and playing in the park, well, that was, you know, beyond the pale. Now, we all smile at that, and we think, oh, how very quaint. Well, that can't be very important. Actually, it was really important at the time. It was hugely important. You were in or you were out on the basis of that behavioural decision. In my own life, I've had, I was blessed with, with godly grandparents, and one of my grandparents was a missionary in India. My missionary grandfather, uh, who, who uh, has passed away a long time ago now, he was horrified when I, as a young person, cut my hair short and pierced my ears. You see, in every people group and in every generation, there have been behaviours that some people have found shocking and unacceptable. So in my lifetime, I have watched my mother struggle with the whole idea of, in the church where we worship, she was required to wear a hat, and she didn't want to wear a hat. Um, Others have considered different things unacceptable. They've been as varied as smoking or dancing or going to the cinema or having a tattoo. You see, that same missionary grandfather, a godly man with a powerful ministry, he would be deeply shocked had he known that a granddaughter of his would turn out to be a tattooed Anglican priest before you teaching and preaching this morning. Because in the church where I grew up, women were not allowed to speak. We were not allowed to teach. And it was a gorgeous and loving Christian community, don't get me wrong. It was where my faith was nurtured. It was where I was cherished as a child of God. But women were not allowed to speak. And a lot of other of their behavioural expectations, I have flouted. But wow, I'm still here. I haven't been zapped. Somehow I'm here, but I have done my own fair share about thinking through disagreements around behaviour. And what I want to share with you this morning is a very, very simple diagram that I've developed over many years, and it's called How to Stay Calm in an Ethical Crisis. So back to Acts, Peter goes back after the Holy Spirit has fallen on all these Gentiles, Peter goes back to explain his actions to the Jewish leaders. And by chapter 15, they're still talking about this controversy. They're debating whether or not Gentiles should be, uh, should be circumcised. And this is an ethical crisis for the early church. And they didn't solve it easily, folks. They wrestled over it. If you want to take this subject further, I warmly recommend reading alongside with Acts, read Romans 14, especially in Eugene Peterson's translation, it's the chapter where he talks about food sacrifice to idols or not sacrifice to idols. What should we do? 
and it's an absolute masterclass in how to respect and get on with people you don't agree with. And disagreement is part and parcel of church life. Every church community disagrees about something. It's hinted at in almost every letter of the New Testament. I love the little mention in Philippians 4, verse 2, where Paul says, I plead with Euodia and Syntyche, bless their hearts. They only got into the New Testament. Why? Because they had a disagreement, poor women. But anyway, Paul does not take sides. And he doesn't tell anyone else to take sides either. He says, I plead with you to agree. Paul could easily, I'm sure he knew what the issue was, he could easily have taken sides. But Paul says, do not take sides. So I love it that he he commands unity. He had a bigger agenda. He encourages them both to stay as part of the family of God. Now, I'm sorry to say that if you know anything about church history, you will know that it is a story of taking sides, brought about by disagreement. I won't go into a whole long sorry list of reasons why Christian denominations exist simply because people have taken sides on matters of behaviour or theological disagreement. I'm daring to say that Jesus and Paul had a bigger agenda. Jesus, in John 17, prayed for one thing and one thing alone, that they may be one. He prayed for unity. The unity of his followers was his single biggest desire in his heart. And how would that united community be characterised? John 13.35, by this will all men know that they are my disciples because they love one another. Not because they fall out and have disagreements. Oh, how sad that that is how we're known. But Jesus' desire was that we would be known by our love. So Jesus and Paul have a bigger agenda, bigger than taking sides over any dispute. In fact, when Paul was writing 1 Corinthians and he talks about all those gifts, those lovely spiritual gifts, some of which would have made some of those Christians feel ever so special and important, and some of them feel that they weren't quite so special and important, Paul goes, and now I will show you the most excellent way. And that's the sentence that leads into that magnificent chapter on the preeminence of love. So this morning, I'm not going to take sides because I've just told you that we're not to do that. I am, though, going to bring you up to speed with what one of the major ethical crises is, which I'm sure you're already aware of. There is currently, both in our society and in our church, a huge debate around sexuality, morality, the status of marriage, of whether or not homosexual Christian people living in faithful relationships can be fully part of the life of the church. And these questions cover a whole spectrum of issues from what we feel and think about cohabitation before marriage to what we feel and think 
about someone who chooses to change their gender from the birth gender they were given at birth. Let us never forget that these issues involve real people whose hearts break over these matters. This is not, we're not standing back and making judgments about cardboard cutouts. These are real people and real human issues. They are complex and challenging, and we should not shy away from talking about them, even though we know we might not agree. Archbishop Justin Welby has um, encouraged the writing of a course called uh, Living in Love and Faith. And for the last few Sundays, it's been on our notice sheet. And that's partly why I've chosen to speak about this disagreement this morning. So in our deanery, one of our vicars, Reverend Alison Hampton from Claverdon, is going to be running this course in September. It's a five-week course and it's on Zoom. And it's a journey of listening to those who might think and feel differently. The course is not designed to persuade you in one direction or another. It's to help you uh, be prepared to think more deeply about these issues. So um, that's the context of why I'm talking about it now. So how do we stay calm in an ethical crisis? Well, I'll just now and finally come to this diagram, which I have developed over the last few years, and I haven't yet had it published. So if it ever gets published, you heard it here first, folks, okay? It's a very, very simple diagram. It's a circle. It has three sections. Each section represents a different way of settling a disagreement, Okay, so let's look at it section by section. If you can't read it from where you are, you'll have to come up afterwards, but I'll read them for you. This first section says, does the Bible make it clear that this is either right or wrong? Okay, this is a really useful and valuable section of the circle. Does the Bible make it clear whether this, whatever behavior it is we're talking about, is it right or or wrong. Okay. Now, we were not present. The, the trouble is that some of the issues that we're dealing with now were not present in Bible times. Therefore, we're looking at the Bible and we're trying to extract principles that might apply. We're also needing to be aware that when we read our English Bibles, we are not reading in Greek or Hebrew or Aramaic. And therefore, we've got to read very carefully to ensure that we are reading the text with the same nuance that it originally had. So basically, folks, beyond the Ten Commandments... Oh! Okay. I'm not going to read anything into that. Basically, folks, beyond the Ten Commandments, the Bible, there's an awful lot of behavioral issues that it's very, very hard to definitively say, what does the Bible say about this? That it's clearly right or wrong. Now, I'm aware that some of the reasons why we might disagree is because some of you might feel, no, no, the Bible is absolutely crystal clear 
and my understanding of the Bible is the one that's there. Okay? I know that for some, that is a step. For some, seeing what the Bible has to say will be the only segment in this circle. And you're sitting there thinking, well, what's she got behind the other two segments? Because surely this is our only guide. Well, what did Peter do and what did James do? They had a vision. They listened to the Holy Spirit. They watched what was going on. Those Gentiles were filled with the Spirit. They had to explain that. They didn't go rushing to the Torah and say, what does the Torah say about this? What does, the, what does their Bible say about it? They listened to the Holy Spirit and they looked around them and saw what was going on. So this is only one section. And my grandfather, bless him, bless him, he's taken a bit of a bashing this morning, my poor grandfather. Um, my grandfather took Paul's words from 1 Corinthians very literally. Women should have long hair, and when they come to worship, they should cover it. And, uh, and to Timothy, women should keep silent in church. He had no openness to there being a cultural context in which in which Paul wrote those words. He also, sadly, had no understanding that those instructions taken out of context would damage the emerging faith of a young woman in the 1970s. That was sad. That was sad. You see, you can't pick and choose which words in the Bible you would like to understand in a cultural context and which words you don't want to understand in a cultural context. They all come in a cultural context and you've got to understand them that way. So this first segment is not easy. We have to reflect on it seriously. The next section, okay, this next segment says, how does our response to this issue affect our brothers and sisters in the faith? How does our response to this issue affect our brothers and sisters in the faith? And for this segment, I refer you again to Romans 14, where Paul talks about how our decisions about eating food or not eating food, sacrifice to idols, how does that affect other believers? Again, he doesn't take sides but he asked them to think lovingly and respectfully about how their decision affects others. And this section is all about that prayer of Jesus that said, you will know you are my disciples. They will be known by love. So if we've wrestled with an ethical issue and section one hasn't helped us, we might be helped by section two. But there is yet a third segment of this circle and that is, how does the way that we live and speak, how does the way that we respond to this issue speak to those outside the faith? If we exclude, if we vilify, if we label and reject people as being beyond the pale or unacceptable to God, not worthy of being included in God's family, what message does that give to those around us who do not yet know this God of love. Those early Christians were surprised to the core of their being that God would include Gentiles. 
Are we prepared to be surprised to the core of our being? Might this circle, this segment, help us towards a decision? Now, I'm acutely aware that I've only given you three questions. Jesus was notorious at throwing out questions and not giving answers, making people think for themselves. And this is what this circle challenges us to do. It challenges us to do the hard work of thinking. Does the Bible give a clear answer? How does the attitude I take affect those in the faith who think differently from me? And what does the position we hold, how does that speak to the world at large? These are really difficult questions. And I know that you will have a view, and I have a view, and I'm not being coy. I'm more than happy to have a leisurely cup of coffee with you and talk it over in much greater detail. But I will not campaign for that view. I will campaign for one thing and one thing alone. And I dare for that one thing to be the same thing that Jesus campaigned for and Paul campaigned for. And to get to that, I'm going to ask you one question. What is, this is rhetorical, but I want you to answer it, but only in your head, not out loud. What part of this circle is the most important part? Answer that for yourselves. What part of this circle is the most important part? Now, I don't know what you have said and thought to yourself, but here's the answer. The circle is the most important part of the circle. It's not this part, it's not that part, it's not this part. It's the whole. It's the whole, it's the unity, it's the staying together. And I dare to draw it slightly differently and put a heart in there. The circle is the most important part. We will disagree. It's not easy. Issues like this are complex. But we must stand together in love for one another. So there is an application from this sermon, and I apologize that it has been a bit long, but it's an it's important subject. There is an application. You may know somebody for whom these issues are very close and very personal and very real, or you may not. You may not know anybody who's grappling with those issues. But the application is the same thing. Whether this subject matter touches you or not, the application is that we stand together in unity and we love one another, even when we disagree. And we have the courage to acknowledge that agreement isn't always easy. Jesus prayed for unity. The application is also that we have to be prepared to do the work do the work of thinking about the Bible. What does it say? Do the work by having a conversation with other people. Do the work by coming on that course that I mentioned if you're interested. Do the work by reading your newspaper and listening to your neighbour. Oh, it would be so much easier, wouldn't it, if somebody would just tell us what we should do and what we shouldn't do. But... Down the centuries, that kind of reaction to ethical crisis has led to division. 
People have thought it would be so much easier if we just tell people that they're not supposed to baptise babies and they're only supposed to baptise adults and put them in water completely. Bang, one big division. It would be just so much easier if we told people that only males should be priests. Bang, another division. We have to do the work of thinking things through because if we don't, we're not growing and learning and we're not loving. And we have to accept that there will be differences. We mustn't be content to define ourselves as a tribe of people by our behavior because God wants us to be defined by love, by love. We are loved by an awesome God who's bigger than we think, whose desire is for us to not impress him by keeping rules, but to love others, who loves us when we mess up and he knows we will, and who longs for us to love and accept others in the same way, a God who is outrageous in his generosity. So let's be more like God the God who sometimes, I think, has hung his head and wept over the way his children have torn each other apart, but who still calls us to unity and to the seemingly impossible task of loving one another and staying calm in an ethical crisis. So let's just be still for a moment and pray, and then we're going to declare what we believe. Lord, here we are, your children. You know our hearts. You know our thoughts and our views. You know that some of us feel excited and some of us feel afraid. Lord, thank you that you love each one of us. Make us a better reflection of your love in every way. We ask this in your name. Amen.